In the first episode that you recorded with Nick Campbell, one of the things that he talks about is work flexibility, people working from home or working from shared space, and people kind of setting their own hours. I've heard a lot about this like over the past couple of years, but I feel like it's something that's only been sort of like experimented with here and there. And Nick seems to be pretty successful with it. I was wondering what your opinion about it was, but I also want to preface before I say this, like for me personally, I've always been interested in this, being able to either work from home or kind of set your own schedule. But what I've noticed about myself is that like, structure for me is a big thing. So it makes it easier for me to work when like, I know I have to be at work at a certain time and the work ends at a certain time and being around other people who I'm working with also helps me. So, you know, with, with me coming from that place, I'm wondering what your opinion on that is. I'm going to try to answer that question in parts. I think speaking just for myself, and, and being very selfish about it, I really do enjoy working from home. The reason why is because I can be comfortable in my pajamas or sweatpants and my home is the most comfortable place that I, I have currently. And everything is set up exactly the way I want and I can get a lot more work done because I'm not compelled to go and say talk to you about an edit or follow up or give somebody else some direction or something like that and I'm constantly being interrupted all day long and that's just part of being a manager that people your teams need direction and they need feedback so they can continue moving forward and when I'm at home none of that happens and I'm not tempted to go because it's impossible to walk down the hallway and tell Jamie hey good job on this and I need this done by Thursday or whatever it is so I can get a lot done and I feel more productive at home but then I also realized then I am not talking to people and I'm not providing any kind of direction or clarity on things. And the best that I can do probably is just fire off an email and say, here's what I'm thinking. And so then I, I see that that could be a detriment. Now, I know people who work at home and they start to get walled in and they become somewhat antisocial and they forget how to interact with other human beings. Jim Rohn is famous for saying, you are who you spend the most time with. So if you want to know who you are, average the five people that you spend the most time with, look at their income, look at their life goals, look at their family and their happiness. You are the average of those five things. So when you're by yourself, well, what are your average five going to look like? Probably going to be uh, a pet, maybe your spouse, your kids. And so you start to think and operate differently. You know, I noticed that sometimes my wife, because she spends almost all of her day with the kids. She has to adopt to their language and speak to them a certain way. And sometimes she has to remind them several times. And then I come home and she's using the same operating system to talk to me. And I'm like, whoa, I just came from the professional world and now I have to. So we're both coming from two different worlds and we need to like meet in the middle. I need to look at her not as an employee or a manager of the house, but as my wife, the mother to my children. And then she needs to look at me not like as a, overgrown boy and as her husband and the breadwinner yeah so i can see that having its pros and cons now would would blind or the future work better if we're all worked remotely well let's talk about a little bit of that 
I think there are definite cost advantages because you get to live uh, in in a place that's probably beautiful, something that you can afford, where the cost of living is much lower, so your quality of life is much higher. But then I just miss the collaboration aspect. Like when we sit down and we look at something like right there, that's the frame, or that's brilliant, and or the accidental discovery when you pass by somebody's screen, or you know, they were doing, they were looking at something else for another project, even. And and you're and I have had this reaction too. Like that's really cool. Can you send me that link? Because I'm working on something else over here. I couldn't have given that person direction to find that because I wasn't looking for that. Mm-hmm. So is there a hybrid model? I don't know. But I also noticed that when Nick was working on his videos, he was shooting it. He was editing it. So as good as that might be, it's never going to get to that multi-camera switching level. He's got all the support. And somebody's cutting in B-roll and doing all these... Because that takes a lot of work. Yeah. So right now, I assume he's doing all the production himself. And you, you can see here in our studio with the cameras and the lights. And if I have an idea to try something, the guys figure it out and we, we do a test. And it either looks good or it doesn't or it works or it doesn't. And we try other things. Or here's something that I really do cherish, Stuart. When we finish an episode or a segment, we go to lunch together. Not all of us and not all the time, but we do. And then we we have, we riff on each other. This is like the jam, <laughs> right? The band is jamming. Yeah. And it's like off the clock, if you will. So one of the ideas that we had in the car was they're like, Chris, we just, right, we're like, we could see you getting angry on the call because people were doing that. I think we should just do a whole segment where you just cut them off. Like they're dead to you. Like ask your question. <laughs> You're on there with Chris. And if you don't ask the question correctly, I'm just going to hang up on you and say next. And then they would play like a little buzzer sound. And I thought it was like really mean spirited. <laughs> so you're like a Gordon Ramsay kind of yeah, character yeah. where you're just like, done, donkey, <laughs> what are you saying? You know, whatever it is. And then just, this is garbage. So maybe that wouldn't have happened for those chance encounters. And I love that. And I think you like structure. And I also just like seeing you just as a human being like, hey, it's nice to see you today. And I don't know if there's even a creative thing that I can equate to that, but it's just to connect. I think humans are social creatures. So mm-hmm. if you work at home, where are you going to get that kind of interaction? How are you going to be inspired? Greg, Matthew, Ben, they do things that inspire me. Nothing to do with what I'm doing, but it's like, okay, it's cool. So the next topic that I wanted to hit with you was Nick talks a lot about how when he was sort of first starting up as a designer, he was working places and he was getting a lot of constructive feedback on his work from supervisors, from people that are working with him, et cetera, et cetera. And I just wanted to talk about growth via feedback, why feedback is important, why instructors are important, basically like why a person should submit the work that they're doing to others and accept in return feedback to help them grow. Nick was really smart about this and he knew he he knew what he didn't know. And so he was seeking mentorship. And if you think about it, a mentor is a person who shares their point of view, how they make decisions in the world and what they're looking for. Some are better at it than others. And the ones that are great are teachers to the world. So if, if I can inhabit your mind for a little bit, if I can glean a little bit of your knowledge, well, it looks a lot like feedback. So... Dr. Holtzman, who's the um, faculty development person at Art Center, when I sit down, basically his job is to help teachers teach better. 
he's into pedagogy, which is the, the study of education, I believe. And he said that, Chris, what you're trying to do is you're trying to break down what you're looking for when you look at work. So he would ask me something like this. He's like, when you're critiquing a piece, what are the five things you're looking at and making a decision on? And that question caught me off guard. Because usually a piece comes up, all the, what is that, uh, synaptic nerves fire off and I'm going into some kind of automatic mode where I'm just talking and just reacting. So when he said that, it took me a moment to kind of figure it out. I said, okay, well, I'm first looking for clarity. Can I see the frames? Do they make sense? Is it too complicated? Okay, so now it's clear. I have to say, well, it's clear, but is it interesting or is it boring? So I'm looking for something that is interesting or dramatic. You can have something very clear and it'll be very boring. And next I'm asking myself, do the moments that add up in a sequence, do they reveal a bigger whole? Is there something much bigger than the frames that we just see? So it's clear, it's dramatic. So let's just say that's an action film. dramatic action there's fight sequences explosions but adding all the parts up don't lead to a bigger hole it's not revealing a bigger truth or something like that and we go on and on so then I broke it down to these five things so a good mentor now I don't want to say that everybody that gives feedback is good because people who give feedback and say oh this work is average or I expected more from you that is feedback that is telling you that it's not hitting a certain standard but it doesn't give you a path towards how to make it better you're not gaining any more insight to making it better than you did prior to that person saying that so one of my rules from from teaching all the years that i've been teaching i guess about 15 years or so now is i never make a comment to attack the person i will talk about the work And by virtue or extension of me talking about the work, you may feel attacked. And I will go hard on the work, but I'm not sitting there attacking you. Unless you make it about you, and then we will have a conversation about that. And I'm a really straight shooter. So if a kid comes up and says, you know, I did this and I did that, and this is what I came up with. And it looks like total BS to me where that looks like 10 minutes worth of work. So something is not adding up for me. Now I have to ask you, and now we get into issues of integrity. If you told me I put five minutes worth of work into it, I leave it like that. But then I have this thing about honesty, right? So let's just be real with each other. It took you 10 hours to produce that work. Can you show me the iterative steps? Did you build this model? Like, Did you build it backwards with one eye closed? Like, How, how could it take you that long? You know, you're either inept or you're not telling me the truth. But I'm digressing here because... That's the only time I would actually, because if students are listening to us, what a liar, he he went after me, (laughs) right? And maybe I did. Maybe I'm just a liar, I don't know. You want to say something, though? You were making examples of people giving sort of like generic feedback, and that just reminded me of last night when Danny was talking about the fact that like if somebody ever tells you you know it just didn't do anything for me or something like that, he was like, get as far away from those people as you possibly can. He talked about clients who give feedback. Like, I'll know it when I see it. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. That doesn't help me at all. Yeah. That's the, when you hear that, I'll know it when I see it, you got to just run. A client, a supervisor, a boss, somebody's like, make it fresh, make it rad. 
make it dope. <laughs> That's a person being really lazy and inarticulate. And if you're going to take on the responsibility of being a manager and art director, you better know what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. It's the worst kind of being subjective. Basically. Yeah. It's just like, I like it. I don't like it. Cool. Not cool. It doesn't really help me. So now that we've parsed that down a little bit to say that there's di- different kinds of feedback, we'll group a whole bunch of kinds of feedback into doesn't provide direction. It attacks me personally. None of that is stuff is good. That mm-hmm. stuff is toxic. All it does is it makes a person start to second guess themselves and become really insecure. And I've, watched other creative directors do this and what happens is the person comes in full of confidence they know what they're doing and they leave a shell of who they were and it's totally heartbreaking to see that because they 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 even question like does the sun come up in the east you know yeah does the earth orbit around the the sun like they just usually don't up from down anymore and i and i have to now think parts of like uh, psyops psychological operatives operations i think they probably do these kinds of experiments on you to brainwash you so then you're programmed to take in new information that's not true Mm -hmm. and that's a horrible thing to do to a human being especially in a non-combative role like we're working in the creative industry (laughs) why would you do that you are going to destroy somebody's psyche well, uh, let me ask you something. I, I was as as we were talking about this, I was thinking about you know being in school and as a student. I'm gonna kind of take this away from design for a second, and put it towards film because that's my background. One of the issues that I had getting feedback on scripts that I was writing in school was a lot of times fellow students or teachers had a very different idea of what they found interesting or what they found exciting. And so, you know, I might submit a script to a teacher who, you know, really likes X, Y, and Z. And I'm more going, I'm more going for an ABC kind of feel. So in situations like that, how much of that feedback should you take to heart? How much of that feedback should a person work on if, I mean, obviously if it's a client, you have to take 100% feedback and you have to bend that towards them. But just from a personal perspective, if you're looking for feedback from somebody and they're not really on the same wavelength, should you take that to heart and change what you're doing or keep going with where you're going? So two parts. Let's talk about client feedback first. And I want to provide some clarity on this. We, we need to understand something. When a client pays you to do something, you have an obligation to do what it is that they need you to do. And we understand that. That's what you're talking about. Mm. But I also don't necessarily feel that it's also in serving them that they prescribe to you what to do. That's like the client who prescribes his own medicine. And we don't want to do that or self-diagnose. Self-diagnosing. So they're self-diagnosing and then they're also prescribing what to do. Okay. So this is where you as an intelligent and smart creative can sit there and talk to your client and listen to them and try to understand their ultimate concern and then devise a meaningful solution to solve that. So don't ignore the ultimate concern, but sometimes a client, and this is a very typical thing, they'll say, 
mm, make the logo bigger. That's the typical one. Everybody's going to groan, right? Make the logo bigger. God, it's already big. <laughs> what they're really saying is, I have a hard time reading it. So if some client says to me, make the logo bigger, I would say something like this. Okay, great. We'll make it bigger. But I'm curious as to why you're saying that. They're like, well, I just can't read it. I say, oh, I see that. Okay, so by my eye, what I see is potentially there's issues of contrast, of complexity, and maybe even an issue of scale as you suggest. Are you open to me exploring a few options that might solve that problem without necessarily making it bigger? Well, well, you know, I don't know, but okay, sure. I change the color, I reduce the background, I blur some things out, change the contrast, put it in front of the client again, that goes so much better. And that's what I'm talking about. Like I'm 100% listening to your ultimate goal, but not necessarily doing what it is that you think I should do. So I'm not following your prescription. I'm going to try a couple things, but I ask for permission. And sometimes when I wholeheartedly disagree with a client, I'll say something like this. At the end of the day, there's no confusion in my mind. Who gets the final say? It's you. And we, I will do exactly what you want me to do. But I feel beholden to you to tell you, I think this direction is inferior by a multitude of three to the other direction. Here's why. What would you like to do? And that's all I can do. Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to argue with them. I'm not going to try to persuade them beyond that. I'm just going to play it like that. And once people can hear from you that you're going to do what they want and they've been heard, that's important. They're now open to hearing other ideas. If you do it like that, you have a much stronger probability of it working out. And I have a pretty high probability of being able to, quote unquote, convince the client of taking my route versus theirs. You okay. know, you know what I find interesting about this is, is um, what I've what I'm what I've been hearing a lot because I've been working on a lot of other conversations that's that similar things like this have been coming up in lately is ask questions, you know, get to the root of the problem. And it's interesting because I feel like I'm definitely guilty of this. And I feel like a lot of like, I feel like a lot of young creative people um, and just starting out creative people are definitely guilty of this as well. It's like, we think that, we shouldn't ask questions because if we ask questions, we might look like we don't know what we're doing or we might look like we're trying to thwart what the client wants or there's like this list of reasons, this short list of things that like, ah, you know, if we ask questions, it's going to come off as negative, you know? So the biggest thing that I'm learning from you right now is that's absolutely not true. Like the, it's the opposite. Yeah. You think if I ask a question, I'm dumb. Like if you use a word I don't understand, maybe it's like alacrity. And alacrity means cheerful eagerness. So if I tell my boys, like when you take out the trash, I want you to do with a degree of alacrity. Like what, dad? <laughs> I want you, you know, I don't want you to be like dragging your feet. But if you sat in a room and somebody says alacrity and you don't know what it means... You're going to be the idiot if you don't raise your hands like, I don't know what it means. Can somebody help? 
So really smart people, in my opinion, are listen more than they speak, ask more questions than they give advice. And I like to be perceived as smart, but I'm not really concerned about it. I'm just going to do what feels right to me. And so, yes, you, you do ask a lot of questions. And there are good questions there are bad questions. Like if my son... Okay, so here's here's a here's an example of a bad question in case somebody in the audience is listening and is like, what? Okay. I have my two boys here and they're spending the summer at the office trying to get a taste of what it's like to be at work. And my younger boy, he's 11 years old. He comes in, Dad, can I help you? I'm like, yeah. Hey, buddy, go get me a cup of ice water and some M&Ms. He's like, okay. Comes back, he's like, I don't know where they are. Where are they? I'm like, did you use all of your resources? Did you ask people in the office? Did you try looking in the normal spots before? So he's looking for a prescriptive step-by-step instruction, and that's not a good question. That's just being lazy. That's not showing initiative. The kinds of questions he should have asked is, Dad, as far as I know, there are peanut M&Ms and chocolate M&Ms. Which one do you prefer? And are you one of the types who only eats blue M&Ms? Should I separate them? You know, those are good questions to ask versus where are they? Who do I talk to? What spots should I look in? Those are questions that you can easily resolve some other way. So there, there's there's two examples there for you. Heyo, John Roth here from the future. I'm here to tell you guys about the pro membership. A lot of you have been asking about how you can engage with us and where you can go to meet like-minded individuals. Well, I'm here to tell you how. For $75 a month with the Pro Membership, you can join Chris Doe's collective of creative entrepreneurs, which includes everyone from designers to strategists to writers and more from all over the world. Also included is over 40 hours of exclusive videos on a variety of topics, from the business of design to project management, and access to two pro calls a month, where you can have your questions answered by Chris live. All that and more in your Pro Membership for just $75 a month. Not afraid of commitment? Sign up for a year and save $150. The Pro Membership, exclusively in the online store. Go to thefuture.com slash shop for more. And you you talking about this just kind of made me realize something. I've spent a fair share of the last couple of years being a freelancer, and um I, I'm not sure that I would like to admit that it's laziness, but I feel like there has been a lot of times where I've dealt with clients before and they didn't really know what they wanted. And I probably wasn't asking the right questions to get to what they wanted. And I did finally just relent and say, what is it that you want? Probably not in those terms, but basically just kind of said to them, like, just tell me what you want as an up-and-comer, how do you learn what questions to ask? What is a good resource to kind of develop those skills in getting down to that that core of what the customer or what the client wants? Is it is it something that you that that a mentor brings to you or is it something that like you can develop on your own or how how do you get to that space? That's a really great question. It's it's experience, obviously. Experience helps, but, but there are some shortcuts. Yeah. So we're we're big on life hacking. We're always looking for ways to do something smarter, faster, and work less and do more. So okay. Something I've learned recently, and when I say recently, in the last few years, is if you ask a person 
what they're trying to accomplish. What are your goals? What's the objective? What are you trying to do? So in the case of like make it bigger, what are you trying to do? Oh, I, I need to make it more legible. And then you can ask some why questions like why don't you think it's legible right now? So you when, when I go out and lecture, I say think like a five-year-old. And they're like, what? <laughs> yeah. I go to bed. Why? Because it's late. Well, why is it late? You know, they just keep asking why. And they'll check you on your stuff. It's because it's arbitrarily determined by me now to go to bed. And don't ask me another question. So start with what are you trying to do? What's getting in the way? And why do you believe that to be true? Those are my three golden questions that typically when I speak on this about asking better questions, those are your go-to. Okay? Use that. Hope, hope that helps. And, and another thing, and, and you can listen to the episode when we talk about communication and being transparent and letting people know what it is you're thinking about, that helps out a lot. And again, that's another skill. And these are the skills that I think are absolutely necessary in the 21st century. The ability to ask great questions, learning how to listen, learning how to be present and transparent with your thoughts, learning how to learn. Maybe the last one's learning how to search. That's it. I think K through 12 should be about this over and over and over again. Because the problems of tomorrow, I'm sorry, because the solutions to the problems of tomorrow have yet to be invented. So there will be nothing for you to necessarily look up. But if you have some kind of framework, a way of thinking and moving through the world, no matter what is thrown at you, you'll feel really confident because you believe in your tools to solve any kind of problem. That's the definition of confidence, right? When I say, I am confident that you're going to be able to do that task. I'm saying, I believe whatever skill sets you have, your way of working, will be able to tackle anything that's thrown at you. So when we say self-confidence, it means that you now have the tools to take on any kind of problem. So I can be thrown into most kinds of meetings and problems and situations that I know nothing about. Yes, I will be disoriented at the beginning. Yes, I will feel a little bit insecure at the beginning. But I know if I just use my process of trying to understand a problem and being transparent about what I know and what I don't know, things will work itself out. And it hasn't failed me. But let me go back. Let me go back to your two-parter. You're going to have to do me a favor. You're going to have to like do one question <laughs> one at a time because I have to not only know how to answer, I have to remember the two-part question. So my computing power is like reduced, <laughs> right? Okay. I think the other part to your question is, well, how do you how do you take in the feedback? Let's just say now it's the good kind of the positive kind of feedback. Why are you motivated to do this in the first place? Why? So the first thing that you want to think about is this: separate you from the things that you do. Okay, detach yourself from you as a human being and the things that you do and make. When you eat a meal and you take the wrappings and you crunch it together, well, that's trash now when you've made that trash and you've contributed to the landfill. But you as a human being are not trash. You are not part of landfill. But when we craft something, whether it's an object, a film, a motion graphics thing, or a logo, it somehow, for some reason, becomes part of our own identity. It's not. In order for you to listen wholly, you need to be objective about this now. So you need to detach. You need to look at it for what it is. It's now a drawing on a piece of paper made by another person, not you. 
And you need to listen and you need to be as critical about that piece of work as you would anything else in your life, right? You notice a lot of people who are quick to give comments and feedback are also like super defensive. Well, when we talk about the symmetry of logic, it's like it was easy for you to give advice and just spew stuff out of your mind. But when somebody else does it to you, you don't like it. So one of those two things needs to change. Stop giving advice or be better at taking advice. Okay, so this will help you be less defensive because now it's somebody's work and we're going to talk about it. And what you should do then is you should listen for things that you can do, directions it can go in, okay? It needs to be a little bit shorter. This isn't working. And where something is confusing and abstract, you should ask a question about, what do you mean when you say that? One of my students when I said to the class, that's not a very elegant solution. I was going to walk away from that comment. That's not an elegant solution. Everybody nod like, yep, it's not an elegant solution. And the smartest student I've ever had said, Chris, I'm not trying to be a troublemaker, but what do you mean when you say elegant? <laughs> I have a sense of what that means, but I, I think maybe, I suspect your definition is different than mine and theirs because I think they thought it was elegant at that time, right? We're not all trying to make ugly things. I said, okay, all right, Mr. Smarty Pants. He caught me. All he had to do is, why do you think or what? You know, he just asked for clarification and that's a great tool to use. So I said, okay, when we think of things that are elegant, how would you describe them? We think of things that are clean, that are modern, that are uncomplicated, that seem almost natural versus overworked. So what I did was on the spot, I created a value graph, X, Y. On the right is of something very positive. On the left is something the opposite of that. So on one side, it's clear. On the other side, it's confusing. On one side of the spectrum, it's dramatic. On the other side, it's boring. On one side, it might be cliche versus innovative. And we're just looking at the spectrum. So now let's look at each piece of work. And that, and even as we all are very subjective about grading, at least now we have some criteria to look at it. And each one can score it. And that makes it less subjective. So that was him asking me a question that Dr. Holtzman taught me. Which was, explain what you're looking for in three to five points. And that's what I was looking for. That's what I wanted in elegant design. Now, I have to tell you, the reason why I was able to excel quicker than my classmates was when the teacher critted the work, I sat there and looked at it like, whose work is that? Even though I knew it was mine. And if they would tear it apart, I'm like, okay, that's cool. That's right. I would just take the information in it and I would just try it. It was very clear in my mind, I'm here to learn something. So what's the point of me being here if the instructor says, do this, this, and that? I'm like, no, that's not going to work. And we've all been that. We've, we've all maybe, maybe have witnessed that. And we know, like, what is wrong with that person? Next week, what are you going to do? You're going to repeat the exact same mistakes over and over again. It's like you're living in a virtual groundhog, groundhog day all your life. One thing I was wondering is, is, would you say take a little bit of the time that you're using to improve your artwork and instead use that to figure out how to ask the right questions so that you are learning how to better deal with clients at a young age. 
because I feel like a lot of people, they go to school, it's all about the work. How does your work look? And they get out of school, they're still in that mindset. So they're always about like, well, what is what does my stuff look like? Does it look good enough? The client doesn't think that it looks good, but I know that it looks good because I've spent all this time working on it. And a lot of people maybe don't even take into consideration for their first five or 10 years of work, how to best deal with clients. You know, they keep, they stumble over those same things over and over again. So do you feel like it's safe to say when you graduate from college, you need to switch modes and focus a little bit less on how good the work looks and a little bit more on what your client needs from you? Again, a lot to unpack in your, your question there. Okay. I don't think you should flip modes because you should have been in the right mode to begin with. Mm. And that's what you're saying. You're like, there was a student mentality and now there's a professional mentality. You should have had the professional mentality as a student. So there is no, it's all about scaffolding, right? So we're moving up every single day towards becoming the ultimate version of yourself. So let's take it back into school. I think you do need to learn your craft, but I think you should learn why you're doing what it is you're doing. So it's not from a gut instinct anymore. And it's difficult for creative types to think that that's possible. When I tell people, are you offended by the idea of a creative formula or not? And I think sometimes they feel like that's demeaning to their magical witchcraft that they practice, right? They really do. It's like, then you're just saying like, I'm an automaton, I'm a robot. And I just, would you think that's such a foreign concept? And I said, let me prove it to you. There's this thing called predictive typing. How does the computer know what you're going to type before you know? You type in a few things because it's running some kind of crazy algorithm based on a lot of data points as to what people are searching for when they start typing in these letters. Like, did you mean? How does Google know that? Now, Google does a better job of predicting what it is that you want more so than a real human being. Like, you can spend all day with me, Stuart. And I'm like, yeah, I'm thinking of that W. Th-, and then it's like, Weston Hotel? I'm like, yes. How did you know that? <laughs> right? So I, I think it's like everything in science reveals that there's logic and order to these seemingly random things. Once what we viewed the world with mysticism and full of awe and wonder, science begins to explain everything. So I think the creative process is one where you can explain and look at it step by step. That makes me, I think, a good student and also a good teacher because I can see things in those step-by-step things. So when you're trying to make something good visually, that tends to put you in the realm of subjectivity into taste level. Somebody likes gold, somebody likes silver. Somebody like those things are both gaudy. Well, that's very subjective now, and I can't win that war with a client. You can win that war as a student because ultimately the instructor has no power over you except for to give you a grade. And most instructors, I would say, the fair ones, even if they totally disagree with you, if you have a good point of view, they're not going to fail you. But I think first try to understand why something looks good and try to bring a little bit more of the understanding of the science behind it. So when an instructor says to you, that doesn't work for me, You shouldn't go away feeling dejected. First of all, strip the emotion away and say, why do you say that? Not as a kind of a flippant response, not as a knee-jerk thing, not as a defensive maneuver, but to 
one where you truly want to learn. Why? How did you come to that conclusion? I'm curious. They might not be able to articulate it to you, but they'll make an attempt. And do your best to see like, okay, I don't want to repeat those same mistakes. Now, those same skills will be used when you're out in the real world. Replace the instructor with a client. That's not working for me, client says. Oh, what's driving that statement? I'm curious. I agree, something is off. I felt it too. Oh, oh, because there's this part that's a leg- part of the legacy of your brand that we didn't know about that you guys designed in the 1930s and this reminds you, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. That was not part of the public domain. Mm-hmm. Now that you revealed it. So I can see this, sim- I-, I get it now. So if we did X, Y, and Z, more as <clears throat> as a systematic, logical decision of addressing your concern versus subject, subjective, artistic, decorative thing. Oh, now we're on the same page again, and now we're good. So it would be good if we could think like that, and I've been able to adopt that, and it just was like smooth transition straight into working with clients. Okay, so in school, you pay a lot of money to learn as much as possible. But at the end of the day, you are your own master. Nobody's holding a gun to your head. If you don't want to use Helvetica, don't use it. That's fine. Okay. And then in the real world, there is sort of a gun to your head now. A figurative one where you're not going to be in business long if you keep fighting your clients and you make the experience painful. Somebody, uh, my, my business coach would say to me, you're not that good to have an attitude. <laughs> okay? So Kier would say that. So that meant you don't have that kind of God-given 1% of the earth talent that people will bend to you. And the rest of us just have to work hard and develop great relationships with our clients and deliver a really incredible experience. That's what matters. I have a little tip here. If you're an instructor, if you're a teacher or a mentor or something and you're working with a bunch of students, I've tried some, something that I saw the fashion department at Otis do and I thought was really cool. So when a person is designing a garment and they're having a critique about it, they pair up. So two students get the critique, not just one. And it's pretty interesting how it works. So you have a partner and you switch when it's your work or when it's somebody else's work, your partner's. So the the person, in, in terms of what I was able to perceive and adapt was your only job was to listen. Just listen. You're not even, you don't respond. And your partner, whose work is not involved in this at all, is taking notes based on the feedback that you got. And the experiment that I did with my students was then I would say, to the student who got the feedback, what'd you hear? What are the next steps we need to do? And it's pretty interesting to compare the differences between the objective note taker and the person who's invested in the work and, and to see the differences between the two. Yeah, It's almost like you can see how quickly this person is going to grow depending on how accurately and how many things they're able to recall based on what the note taker took. So... I thought that was great because it took you away from having to do both. Like you can just sit there and listen and not worry like am I recording the notes. So if something wasn't clear you could ask. 
and the person who's who's taking the notes they didn't have a a horse in the race and they didn't care what was being said they just wanted to faithfully write down the action items afterwards and i thought that was a pretty cool thing to do and so i borrowed that for my class yeah so maybe that'll help the instructors out there that are listening to our podcast everybody thanks for tuning in i'm chris i'm Stuart. next week i just want to remind you guys that part two the nick campbell podcast is coming out so stay tuned the future is hosted by me chris doe the show is edited by Stuart schuster big thanks to adam sanborn who composed our theme song to subscribe to the future podcast check us out on itunes stitcher google play and now soundcloud make sure you rate and review our episodes don't miss out on upcoming events live streams workshops and announcements by going to thefuture.com and sign up for the newsletter link at the bottom you can also find us on instagram facebook and twitter at the future is here thanks for listening that's it for this episode see you in the future